Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We launched this podcast series on April 7th, soon after most school buildings shut down in the wake of the coronavirus. Since then, we've talked with school and district leaders coping with the present and how they are planning for the future. Today, June 29th, my colleague Tanji Reed Marshall and I are wrapping up the season of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, Tanji. I have to say I've been looking forward to talking through what we've been hearing and learning with you. We do some of our best thinking together. Karen, you are absolutely right. I've also been thinking about um, how we're going to wrap up all that we've learned and, and pay you know, honor to the people who helped us think about where schooling is going in America. So this is a treat for me as well. Well, speaking of the people we've been talking about, I do want to just kind of let folks know why we talked to the folks we've been talking to. EdTrust hired me 15 years ago to help find and learn from educators who were helping children of color and children from low-income backgrounds achieve And in those years, I've gone all over the country observing and learning from expert educators who have figured out how to marshal the power of institutions to be great places to teach and learn. Along the way, I've written books and produced the Extraordinary Districts podcast. I wanted to bring to others the knowledge and expertise of the educators I've observed. When the pandemic hit, I found myself wondering how all those educators I had learned from were reacting and what they were thinking about and doing. I knew there would be a lot of stories about how educators were coping, but I wanted to know how expert educators were doing, educators who understand what it takes to help all children learn and what the stakes are for children of color and children from low-income backgrounds. And so in the last three months, we've heard from some of the folks I've written and podcasted about, and I want to say I really appreciate the time they have taken to talk with us. These are busy folks, but I'm really happy to have brought the voices of some of the folks I've learned a lot from to a larger audience. Thinking about what we've heard, my big takeaway as I think about everything is something that James and Deborah Fallows have been writing about for some time. If you look nationally, you see nothing but dysfunction and paralysis. But if you look locally, you can find lots of people all over the country who are solving problems in very practical ways. It's easy to despair for our country when you look at what's going on at the federal level. But in this podcast, we've talked with school and district leaders from, I'm going to name them all because I think it's quite a range. Right. Alabama, California, Delaware, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Washington, D.C., and out of order, Florida. (laughs) Um, Their knowledge and smarts fill me with hope. So that's my big overall observation before we get to some specifics. What about you, Tanji? You have a big takeaway? Yeah, Karen, just listening to you like 
gave us the litany of, of perspectives from the East Coast to the West Coast to the middle. While we were in the middle of it, I didn't think about the, you know, those specifics, but now I'm listening to the list, what are the list of names and, and perspectives that we have? But yeah, I have a big takeaway for me and it's, it rests in the hope, right? Um, we definitely thought about hope in sort of the midst of, or the midst of sort of really challenging, unprecedented times, but hope that is going to take a willingness to think beyond what we're used to thinking about when it comes to education. So my big takeaway is that, yeah, there is hope, but it's going to take a different level of thinking and thought and willingness to realize and manifest the hope. I, I think that's fair. I, you and I were talking a little bit before uh, before this, and one of the thing one of the points you made was that you can really see our conversations. We you know we've been talking to people since April. You can see them in two chunks. One is talking about coronavirus, the response to coronavirus, and so forth, and then George Floyd happened, and that opened this opened to view a sort of separating wound and our conversations were different after the murder of George Floyd. Yeah, there was a somberness. So all along, everyone is serious because we're in serious times and the idea of moving schooling from a brick and mortar place to a home-based digital remote space is in and of itself a gargantuan task. And we realized all of the ways schooling is both a service model as well as an educative model, right? So it does both of those things simultaneously. Then on top of that, so that's very serious conversations and thinking it has to go into that from a logistics standpoint. And folks were, you know, into the logistics. We think about Mick, you know, Dr. Nicholas was really into the, the, Know, logistics of it, Dr. Sterling's talking about the processes and the systems. And then George Floyd gets murdered and the world does another shift. And how do you get educators to tap into students whose lives have been living the George Floyd um, way in the sense of constant uh, negative experiences with police officers to now come into this space. How do we get teachers and educators to wrap their arms around students who are dealing with a racialized world, but they can't get to them, get to them. And so the somberness of it was a very interesting dynamic shift as you know, we heard, you know, really thinking about, oh my goodness, how am I going to help my students or help the adults, help the students process this? You know, so that was a very big shift. Um, I think we both felt because we talked about, you know, wow, we noticed this somberness, um, no less serious, but a level of somberness that took into account the reality of our students having to deal with the, um, I don't want to say trauma, but for some, it was traumatic, right? I don't want to assume trauma, but I want to recognize the possibility of trauma in, in dealing with uh, George Floyd's murder and, you know, how the neighborhoods 
across the world, forget the country, right? Across the world are now calling for this high level, you know, structural change because we know students need it. You know, it's really important to be thinking about. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. One of the things that I've been really struck by in kind of the national conversations, you know, when I when I watch the Senate hearing, for example, which I keep coming back to because I, I I found a level of just disorientation yeah. <laughs> because no one, it, there are folks talking to teachers about how they're shifting their practice and that's enormously important and an important conversation. But very few are talking to the folks who are going to have to actually operationalize any of the plans that the governors and uh, state commissioners are talking about. You know, the level of specificity, for example, that Sergio Garcia and Vinnie Romano, (laughs) principals of high schools, got to, you know, they need to order sinks. Right. And um, they need to order barriers to go between the urinals. They right. need to order, order a lot covers. of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And Corey Miklas from Delaware made the point that even if you have the money, which is not a given necessarily, but even if you have the money, it takes time to order this stuff. This is not, you know, same day delivery, Amazon Prime. Prime, right, right, right. With your drones. No, you order it months ahead of time. (laughs) Exactly, no. And and the national conversation is just sort of so leisurely. And even uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, I saw him talk, I think it was yesterday, and he was asked about when is he going to make a decision about schools? Well, we'll make the decision when we can make the decision. And I understand that. He's grappling with an awful lot of, uh, you know, factors that have to go into that decision. And so I'm not blaming him, but once he makes a decision, there are people on the ground who then have to put that into operation. And you can't turn this stuff on a dime. You cannot. And I think that's what people, and you and I have talked about this, people do not understand the multiplicity of the complexities of schooling. They just do, because we have all in this country gone through school, we think we know, but we don't know what it actually takes to get those things done. So, you know, Mayor uh, Governor Cuomo is correct. He's going to make the decision when he's going to make it, but there are millions of teeny tiny decisions that have to get made that someone like, you know, Vincent Morano is going to have to make, you know, Dr. Sterling is going to have to make. They're going to have to sit down with teams of people and bucket out areas to make sure, like you say, they operationalize whatever mandates are coming. You know, the idea that the CDC says, okay, we want students in their same class with limited people coming in and out, lunch in the same classroom, no specials, no you know specials meaning art gym. Okay, but then that means a single teacher. What does that mean in high school? What does that mean? That works great in elementary because they kind of operate that way anyway, up to maybe in some places grade three, up to some grade four. 
But when you're talking about having one teacher in a classroom all day, what does that mean for your subjects, right? Because if I'm an ELA teacher, I teach, you know, maybe 90 kids. But if I'm a science teacher, I teach 150 kids. So what does that mean for science? What does that mean for social studies? We heard from Dr. Santelisis, you know, when she talked about her daughter, who said, where are my other classes? Right? Like, we, we're not the people asking for this kind of a education process are not looking at how it lives itself out in a day-to-day basis. And that's what's troubling. Well, and when we say all day, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I no. think we're talking about two hours here, three hours there. We're not talking all day, every day. Even, <laughs> even Steubenville, which was the closest, you know, Melinda Young, superintendent of Steubenville, Ohio, said we're going to open as normally as possible. As possible. Mm-hmm. And even they are talking about the high schoolers will learn for the most part, remotely, and then they'll spread all the elementary and middle school kids throughout all the buildings, including the gyms and the, you know, all-purpose rooms and so forth. They're trying to get as normal as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be normal, um, but they're, you know, it's 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 an aim. But someone like um, Mary Hayne Smith from New Orleans. In, in looking at all the multiplicity of all the problems, she's like, let's perfect virtual learning. learning which right. I thought that's such a clear mandate, right? Okay, yes. teachers, now you perfect it, right? right? How do you build those relationships? And that's the tough part, right? That's the, the, tough the part building because, it, the because if, if I don't loop, right? If I don't loop with my students, I have to really think, how do I learn about a student outside of whatever standardized measure is going to be given to me, right? How do I learn about that child as a human before I start reacting to what the documents tell me that child is, right? And that's a Which whole gets lot. To, teachers need a lot more time. A lot more time. To prepare. That's right. To talk with each other. That's right. To build their relationships, to that's collaborate. Right. They so need that, time. You know, Tanji, I know that your lesson on the bluest eye is the lesson that every student in the school should have. Right. So why don't you take that on? And do and that. That's right. Mm-hmm. How to do that. That's and right. And I'll take on some other. Some other know, unit of study or whatever. That's right. They right. need to. We're going to have to. Like I said in the beginning, we're going to have to be willing to divorce ourselves from certain structures of learning, right? We're gonna really have to be willing to ask ourselves some questions about what do we want students to consume as knowledge? Because you and I both know a knowledge building curriculum matters, right? We kids need to know stuff. And we talked about it, right? And kids need to know how to do stuff. But we're going to have to They love knowing stuff, by the way. They just just love knowing stuff. They actually do, right? So here's like a secret for people to get. Kids expect to learn stuff at school. Like kids know what school's about, and they expect to know, and they expect to learn. 
which was why it was so exciting that there was, you know, the one school, one book, one school, right? One book, one district. It was so exciting because that was commonality. That was learning together as a community. Um, But we're going to have to be willing to ask ourselves some important questions. What is, what do we consider knowledge? What do we think is worth students investing their intellectual capacity on? I don't know if we've asked that question yet, even in the midst of all of what's happening, right? Because we are in, like you have said, we're in the immediacy of it. Like we are, we are at the logistical pieces of it and we have to be, but at some point, you know, now that school is going to open, we now have to, and we know that it's going to open in lots of different configuration and time. It's going to be this commodity, right? That's going to have to be really thought about carefully. You know, um, TNTP did a report a year and a half ago, and they were able to get a sense of how students thought about their use of time. You know, they did the study, 133 hours of what students did was below grade level and the students didn't think it was valuable to them. Converse that with only 37 hours that students thought their learning was meaningful. And then you break that down by race, it gets even worse, right? And so if we're talking about you know, equitable educational practices, we have to now go back and dig into the how, how we spend time, right? We got to go ask them, you know? I mean, that, that work has been done like in a number of different configurations in different ways. Robert Pianta's work at the University of Virginia uh, mm-hmm. School has been so valuable in kind of chunking out, okay, classrooms, even when they are emotionally supportive and organizationally supportive, are still not academically supportive. Right. They, they waste enormous amounts of time. And Jenny Black raised that. Yes. Right. Yeah. From Junction City, Kansas. She mm-hmm. raised this question of like so much time. And, and believe me, she has focused on not wasting time. I know that she has focused a lot on not wasting time. And yet still there's a lot of wasted time right. you know, in schools. <laughs> School, um, right. You know, just in the nature of, OK, now line up, we're going to go to lunch. And then, we're, you know, I mean, there's just time, time. wasting. Yeah. Right? And yeah. And and classroom management stuff. We have the opportunity here to not waste any time right. in some ways, right? So let us say that kids come back for a few hours a week, basically, say four hours a week. Well, how are you going to use that time mm-hmm. so all the rest of the time is really productive? And That's I right. think Sonia Santelis has got to that, the Baltimore CEO, um, of, you know, that's time we can use to build relationships, to really uh, cement our community so that then you go back and you can do some learning. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we, we figure that out. Right. Um, uh, but I will say the thought of having kids on Zoom for five hours a day, I can barely stand to have oh, to I know. two hours a day. And I'm, you know, relatively, <laughs> relatively grown up. <laughs> right. For the most part, like I'm grown up today. Like who knows about tomorrow, right? Like in this moment, I'm grown up. <laughs> and Zoom is exhausting. exhausting. It's not the brand, you know, all of these video conferencing. Right. It's always exhausting 
trying to train your attention to a screen in that mm-hmm. in the kind of way that is required for real interaction, right? That's so right. We can't expect kids to be on. I, I'm I'm seeing some plans that expect teachers to mimic the school day. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, there are no. Yeah. They can't. It's they impossible. Can't. It's impossible. You know why? Because here's the thing. It's it, it works if every single family only had one kid. Right. It might work. It, it might, might work, work. Right. It might work. Right. And we have this sort of like linear progression through the day. But any family that has more than one child in different grades, you're it's it's shot then. Right. And unless right, like it's unless they have all these, you're gonna need multiple devices and very, very strong internet access for stu- for families to mimic the school day. Right. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting about what Nicholas Sterling said in Valley Stream 30, Mm -hmm. where they they realized this. And so they decided to do grade level. So, you know, I'll get the grade levels wrong. But first grade is from nine to ten. That's right. Mm -hmm. Second grade from ten to eleven. That's right. Whatever. Because that's a recognition. I mean, I I pay a lot of money for my Internet. And yeah, it 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 is not a hundred percent. I have been incredibly frustrated by my, uh, uh, internet connections. And I, I notice when they have these congressional hearings, they don't always have good internet. Either. They don't Even either. Right. So how do we leaders get to of the country? That's, don't that's always... right. Right. And so how is it going to so, work? So at we school? have to grapple with this mm-hmm. problem because otherwise it's just frustration. It's so frustrating. Right? And, and then we have students who, who, who will check out, will get more checked out, right? Um, but here's an interesting thing that some of that some folks talked about, um, and I don't remember who's, who talked about it, but the idea of discipline's different and this sort of surprise about who might be checking in more, students who weren't necessarily checking in, who are now in this virtual space checking in. It might have, I don't remember who the name of the person was, but I had it in my notes. Actually, um, several people. Right, they talked about that. They that, were like, this was yeah. a surprise. There's right. something about this structure that re- might have reduced some of the threat levels of being inside school. Right. Um, and so that's an interesting thing to be thinking about. And I think one of the one of the areas I find most promising is how much um, educational research is going to come out of this time. You know, so I'm, I'm hopeful that all the education researchers we have and we have a lot in this country. <laughs> yes. We um, at least a good chunk of them will dedicate themselves to really figuring out, well, you know, what works? Mm-hmm. Because we don't know. This is a gr- great unplanned experiment that we didn't anticipate doing at all. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, as, as I keep saying, people are throwing spaghetti up on the wall. It will take some really good researchers to figure out which which strands of spaghetti stuck, you know, stuck yeah. and which ones fell off and which ones we can replicate in some kind of way. Replicate's always a bad word. We can adapt to different contexts. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I which am, ones and which ones really were sui generis, and you know that's just, that's just peculiar that for that particular context. Exactly. Um, I wonder and, about that. Like that's I think yeah, the opportunity. Some really good uh, education researchers mm-hmm. to to focus on this question. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, educators have to just kind of grapple their way through this question mm-hmm. and share best, you know, share what they are learning as they learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope we can, in fact, I, I think that's one of the things that we should aim at for in our, we're hoping for a second season. Yeah. <laughs> little announcement. We're hoping for a second, hoping for a second season. season as, yeah. I, I think you're right. You know, I think educators have to, as we wait for the ed heads, and as I call them, and the ed researchers to do their work, I would challenge all of the folks who sit in spaces that are not necessarily researchers to become these kind of ethnographers and chronicle what they're doing, right? To really, really dig in with both their, you know, reflexive and reflective eye to capture what is going on so that we can get some of these rich, thick details and we can get these, you know, action researches out here so people can learn from them and, and, and like you say, adapt because we don't want this sort of retrofitting and just, you know, moving things along. We don't want that, but there's a lot going on. You know? There's a lot going on, but that requires developing this sort of professional distance, right? Because yeah. uh, it's education is such a personal field, right? You know, you <laughs> love your lesson oh, that yeah. you've been doing for a long time, right? You just yes. love that lesson. I loved it. And I say, well, what is it that the kids learn from that lesson? And you say, well, they learn to they learn to analyze literature, and then oh, okay, well, let's see, can they analyze literature? Uh, not, not so, so much. much. <laughs> um, and I didn't mean to use you as the example, but oh no, you're absolutely right. I'm sure all of your students learned exactly what they. Meant oh no, no, no. Let me tell you what. There's a whole bevy of people out there who've been marshalized who will tell you on any given day could have been anything, right? Um, and they knew exactly. The I, I mean, I love like I loved certain you know units of study and certain things, but you know I will say as a teacher you know, one of the things, and I still have them, the units with all the notes and the, and the names of kids for whom things just did not work and don't ever do that thing again. And, you know, so we're going to need our teachers and our building leaders and our district leaders to be sitting down doing that same kind of work. Yeah, we love what we love because like, that's what we do. But are we willing, like you say, to come up to the balcony? Can we come up to the balcony and look around, look down, and see what was going on enough then to get back down on the floor and do some work and kind of come back up again and go back down again. We need that. That's what we need. That's what we need. And we heard that, we heard that from Melinda Young in Steubenville where, yes, she did. Well, we made sure that we got, that every family had a a device. (laughs) How did we think, you know, why did we think that would work? You know, that's not, (laughs) that's not it. right? (laughs) Right. You know, how did we even think that, right? But that's that professional distance. You do what you do, and then you think about, well, did it achieve it the goal I meant to achieve? No, it didn't. So now we have to rethink. We have to redo. That's what we need moving forward. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, this is an opportunity to reset in that kind of way, because as you said, there are kids for whom this work, that's kind of a, that's kind of a punch in the gut. Yes, it is. A lot of educators, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we've been doing what we've been doing, thinking that that's the way to do it. Right. And really actually sitting at home on a screen and reading on my own works better for me. Mm -hmm. Now, what needs to change? Because I really don't believe that that is the best way for every kid or any kid, really. They, people need socialization. People need to be able to function in uh, larger settings. So how do we change schools so that they're not threats to to kids who find them threatening? That's you know, right. How do we how do we how do we use that knowledge to make schools better? Right. And I mean, you, that's always yeah. the question. How do we use that's the knowledge question. that we're getting? to make schools better. And I think what we have to think about is this idea, and you raised this, this word of sort of socialization. I think that's where the rub is, right? And I think what we have to do is get into what researchers have called this community of practice, right? We want to be in community, right? And what we're doing is, you know, pushing kids through this conveyor belt, hoping they come out on the other side as a, as a socialized being. Well, that isn't working for kids, right? There's a whole bunch well, of kids. It's not working right? for all kids. It's for working all kids. for some kids, but right. not all kids. Right. It's not working for the majority of kids, right? There's a majority of the kids, you know, who, for whom that process does not work. And so we have to figure out what the communities of practice we want, or not what we want, that are necessary to be nimble enough and flexible enough and, and sort of responsive enough to the many different groups of students and types of students, right? Because we have types of students and we have groups of students and we need to think about the community that we want to build, right? And, and, and being learners in community. You know, I think lots of the principals and, um, and, and, the, build, and the district leaders talked about, um, you know, when we had our graduation, we had a drive-through graduation. And it was great, but we did something different, right? We did something different. We didn't do the same thing that we always did. And we gave, and we gave students a way to reposition and be in community differently. And I think that's one of the charges. How do we build communities of learners, authentic communities of learners that are humane, um, you know, in the midst of this? Because students are coming back to school different than they were when they left. You know, they're coming back with different skill sets, um, both in both school sanctioned skill sets and beyond school sanctioned skill sets. And we have to find out how to honor that. We have a lot of students coming back um, reeling from George Floyd murder and the other, you know, instances of police injustice. And we can harp on police injustice as the thing, but we know you and I talked about this. It's not the thing. It is emblematic of the thing that we're actually fighting against. Um, we're coming back with heightened stress levels because the adults in the building are feeling stress, which is going to heighten the stress of the kids in the buildings, you know, and then vice versa. So we're, we're coming all and, back. And remember, some of some students are coming from real pandemic hotspots. Exactly. 
Sussex County, Delaware, Nassau County, New York, Los Angeles County of California. These are hot spots. They will have lost someone they know. That's right. That's right. You know, and we and we have to decide that as they will. Someone, and possibly someone very close. Very to close them. to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so so and and uh, Kennard Branch, the principal in Washington D.C. He talked about this. How how are we going to honor not necessarily the trauma because not everyone is traumatized, but uh, but the the stress, the anxiety, right. of, you know, and sometimes the trauma of students who have been living through a pandemic, who have seen exposed a di- another pandemic of how racism plays out in the day to day lives of lots and lots of people, mm-hmm. including many of, of their families. I mean, right. we heard from Mary Hayne Smith. The first thing she thought of when George Floyd was murdered was her fear for her son. That's right. Getting stopped by a police officer in New Orleans, which is has had its own issues with police. Yep. One of the things that really strikes me is schools is where it all happens. Right, it, right, right, right. All of it happens. Everything happens in a That's school. That's right. That is right. Everything. They're all every even the tiniest school is still a little village of you know stuff going on. That's right. It's Love society. And That's right. Death. That's right. Um, you know, if it happens illness. in society, it's happening in school because right. school is. We keep we we say these things to kids like you know real world. You know we want you to have real world experiences outside of school as if school isn't a real experience right? As if school is not a real world place. School is a real world place and real world things happen in school. And so now when students are coming back and the adults are coming back, they are coming back into a new real world environment. And the question is, how will this new world environment be structured and constructed to honor the humanity and the real um, challenges families have been facing as they continue to develop the academic intellectual aspects of children. Right? Like those right. are the things like we're, you know, at the end of this, you know, you heard me say it, Johnny's got to learn to read. <laughs> So like we gotta speak. and kids expect to learn when they get to school. They know what school is about. They have an expectation from their from their and of their teachers that a teacher will respect their intellectual capacity and tap into it and honor it and teach them like they are an intellectual being. They expect that. They expect it and they experience they experience the lack of that but as yes. real disrespect. Yes, they do. In other words, if I if I say, yeah, you know, you I don't know that you're ready to learn that. Mm-hmm. Um maybe maybe in a few years, that is a lack of respect for the intellectual capacity of students. I, I forget who said it, a brilliant person and whose name I should remember, but a brilliant person said, you can teach, you can find a way to teach any subject 
to anyone at the at an appropriate level. You don't necessarily start with quantum mechanics. Right. But you can explain quantum mechanics to a child in a way that will make sense to a child, even if they aren't, you know, grappling with all the complex mathematics of it. There, you can explain almost everything. Yes, you can. In an intellectually justifiable way. That's right. And to say, oh, well, you know, you're maybe, maybe someday you can learn something. That is a, an act of disrespect. Mm-hmm. And children feel it as, as oh, such. They absolutely feel it as such. And, and, and that's that, and you've heard me use this term before, that's that use of instructional power that teachers have, right? When they miss, when they disrespect the intellect and they, and, and what, one, of, one of the concerns I have and you talked about this as well, um, when schools reopen in whatever the configuration, I am concerned about an imbalance between um, a concern, a real, necessary, authentic concern for the social, emotional well-being of students, but that might translate into a um, kind of disregard for the academics and really getting into, well, our kids have faced so much trauma, we're not going to worry about their academics. And that sentiment is real, has been voiced in lots of different places and is going to be detrimental to many students, particularly students of color and students from whose families are experiencing economic distress. Um, on the flip side of that is this overemphasis on you got to catch all the kids up, right? Like we got to catch them all up and, you know, do all these things to them. We have to find balance. You know, we have to find balance in that. Yeah. And you're, you're right. That's what I worry about. Molly Bensinger Lacey, who's one of the people I've learned from the most, she wasn't in this podcast series, but um, she, I have learned a great deal from her. And she always talked about the academic needs of kids. Yes. As being just as, as important, important as all the other needs. Yeah. They have academic needs and we we have to value that. There's one thing I just want to um, pull out because I meant to mention it. And that is that uh, Trisha McManus from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yes. She talked about... Um, she talked about sort of studying the research on individual tutoring mm-hmm. and really thinking about how to do one-on-one tutoring, virtual, but yep, one-on-one tutoring. Yep. And I think that will be something worth looking at, right? And I, I'm curious how she um, rolls that out and how what she learns from that, because that that strikes me. There are a lot of good ideas in education. They don't all work, but that does strike me as a good idea. It is, right? And I think the research has been promising. Subject to, subject to I mean, there's a lot of research on the power of tutoring, one-on-one mm-hmm. tutoring. Um, I don't think there's a lot of research on virtual doing that tutoring virtually, but it would make sense, right? It makes sense to adapt uh, tutoring to an online experience. And, and we've got... There's a lot of talk about AmeriCorps being expanded. There may be some opportunities to actually really help kids learn to read, as you say, and meet their academic needs. 
but using the in-person time, whatever in-person time there is and whatever sort of synchronous time with teachers there is, that may be a time to devote to relationship building and, and the kind of team building and collaboration and then using other time for the academic. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. And, and I, as I say, I hope there are a lot of education researchers focusing on this. Me too. I hope they are looking and thinking about it. And I hope they are really asking bigger questions. You know, I think we are, I've said this before, and we both talked about this. We really are on the precipice of possibility. You know, do we really want a system of education that um, does not racialize children anymore to the point where they're marginalized and, and, you know, don't want to be at school and can't learn and we keep getting these predictable, disparate outcomes? Do we really want, like, do we really want that? Do we really want um, an education system that is funded judiciously and equitably so that students everywhere get the resources they need to get. Do we want that? Do we want an education system that um, reflects the student population in public schools? Do we? Well, if we do, then this is the time to really create a, a system where these things can happen. You know, you and I were talking earlier, you know, George Floyd you know, his daughter said, daddy changed the world. And people are saying, yes, we're at this place where, you know, we're, we can change society. You know, Emmett Till was also that event that was supposed to change society. And, um, and, and to be it fair, did. it did it some, did. right? It did some, it, it didn't do enough, but it, it didn't do enough. Right. It was a moment. I mean, I was listening to an interview with Eleanor Holmes Norton. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. It was Joyce Ladner. Okay. Who, um, kind of worked with Eleanor Holmes as, as young people, they worked together. But um, Joyce Ladner said that she was a child when Emmett Till was uh, murdered mm-hmm. and that was transformative Formative. for her. And she became a, you know, she went and as a 16 year old uh, registered people to vote in Mississippi at great personal danger, it's a danger yeah. great danger to her family. This was, um, this was a time when people's houses were being bombed all the mm-hmm. time. And um, so, so Emmett Till did change the world, but he didn't change it enough. No. Did change it, change enough. it enough. That's right? the question. Well, and I That's think the question. And I think the question is: will we as a society let what happened to George Floyd change us enough so that we really put our actions where our words are you know we are we have been hearing lots and lots of wonderful platitudes about you know everything related to race and black lives matter and you know who is standing with whom and how they're denouncing this and they're gonna do you know whatever the question is the dust is gonna settle and the question is once it does what will remain standing well, and I think the the immediate question is, will the, will the U.S. Congress send send more money to schools because huh. they're going to need money? They're going to need money. 
They're going to need money. So they're going to need money. That's that's the immediate question before us. And Mm -hmm. just to you know, uh, I will say that I started with when you look at stuff at the national level, you it's easy to despair. Uh, It is only at the local level that you can find find measures of hope. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Right. When the people who do the jobs are making their decisions because they're at the thirty thousand foot on the balcony and they come down to the floor. Whereas our, exactly. you know, the congressmen are, I think they're at the they're up at the hundred thousand, <laughs> the hundred thousand foot lens, and never they're never on the floor. Yeah. So I suspect we could talk for another few hours, Tanji, but I'm afraid <laughs> it, we have to wrap up this episode. Yeah. And season of the Education Trust podcast, extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. Thanks for going on this journey with me. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, ma'am. It has been great fun for me as well. I'm happy to say that the Wallace Foundation has renewed its support and we will be starting up fairly soon. But first, I have to write a book there. I've said it publicly. Yes. Yay, Karen. Write that book. (laughs) I'm really grateful to Harvard Education Press for agreeing to publish it and for giving me a deadline. That deadline is looming and I am a little crazed about it. I will be working feverishly to meet it. If all goes well, the book will be in the Harvard Education Press's catalog in the spring. Fantastic news. (laughs) Before I go, I want to thank everyone at EdTrust who has supported this podcast. And I hope I don't leave anyone out, but I'm I'm thinking about Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Letitia Marrera, Eliza Jarvanen, Rachel Stalkop, Jack Fleming, Keith Keith Curry, Crystal Amzia. Takira Winfield-Dixon, and of course, John King, EdTrust's president. He's helping lead the national conversation on how we should use the lessons of this pandemic to improve equity for all students. Thanks also to Mike Patillo of Tonal Park, who not only records, edits, and mixes the podcast, but also composed and recorded our theme music. If you have found this podcast valuable, I hope you'll recommend today's episode and the entire series to your friends and networks. We've had tens of thousands of downloads, and I'd love to see even more. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. And be sure to subscribe so that you are notified when we begin back up. I suspect we'll be in extraordinary times for quite a while. If you want to be in touch, you can email districts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth or Tangie at remarsh76. Thanks and see you next time.